This season of Feminist Frequency Radio, we're bringing our feminist media criticism live to video. That's right. If you would like to see us as well as hear us talk about all things cyberpunk, you can do that at youtube.com slash feminist frequency. The audio quality on the videos are not quite as good as you get from our professionally edited podcast, but you do get to see our shining faces. So, you know, your call. We also have live video of all our bonus episodes with our special guests, which are only available to patrons. So get in on that fun at patreon.com slash femfreak. Now enjoy the show. Hey y'all, you know we're a nonprofit, right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com slash femfreak. Also fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give, please head over to patreon.com slash femfreak. The iconically triple-breasted woman who, I mean... I can't be the only person who had like an early sexual awakening to that. So. <laughs> Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian. And I'm Kat Spada. And this season, our feminist media criticism has come to us through the implanted memories of our adventures on Mars. This is the season of Cyberpunk. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. The new millennium. This is amazing. Will bring a new experience. How do you fit all that in your head anyway? I had to dump a chunk of long-term memory. This is gonna be fun, Terry. Who is this? Take this thing out of the case and stick it up your nose. Mozart's ghost, the hottest band on the internet. This week, we are discussing the 1990 sci-fi action film Total Recall from director Paul Verhoeven, based on Philip K. Dick's 1966 short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. I added the commas on my own. (laughs) The, The movie stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as a construction worker who receives implanted memories of his time working as a spy on Mars, or is he a Martian spy whose memories of life as a construction worker were implanted? Nobody knows. Uh, This movie co-stars Rachel Tacoden, Sharon Stone, and Michael Ironside. And Total Recall was a box office success despite a fraught production. It struggled through development and pre-production since the producer acquired the rights to the original story all the way back in 1974. Shot largely in sequence on sound stages in Mexico, with Nevada's Valley of Fire State Park standing in for Martian exteriors. Illnesses and injuries plagued the cast and crew throughout filming. Some of the movie's gory violence was trimmed to bring the rating from an X to an R, but it remains well-remembered for its largely practical special effects using prosthetics, animatronics, and miniatures. Total Recall was the winner of the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, and it was the only nominee in that year's category. That was really weird to me, unless Wikipedia had it wrong, but... (laughs) You're gonna love this, Doug. But how real does it seem? As real as any memory in your head. You are on your most important mission. You erased your identity and implanted a new one. If I'm not me, who the hell am I? 
You wouldn't hurt me. We're married. Consider that a divorce. I'm ready for a surprise. Joining us to talk about this film is a professor, a podcaster, and prolific author. At USC, she teaches English, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and American Studies and Ethnicity, and she chairs the Gender and Sexuality Studies Department. Her podcasts include the Gen X pop culture show Waiting to Exhale, and she's the author of Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries, and Why Karen Carpenter Matters. Welcome to the show, Karen Tongson. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We have been having a really fun and weird time looking at the late 80s and the 90s and up to about 2000, 2001, how Hollywood is talking about the net and sci-fi and like what life is when we have a little bit of virtual reality in our real world. But um, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and pop culture being like a big part of your academic and personal interests? Like, how did that get started? I don't know how to frame that. I mean, it's it's because, you know, I think that the historical answer is that I was born and partially raised in the Philippines, which is, as the author Jessica Hagedorn said, spent 400 years in a convent and 50 years, now closer to 100, in Hollywood. Mm. So pop culture, U.S. pop culture in particular, is, you know, constitutive of this colonial, like, legacy that I a part of that I grew up with that, you know, so so much of talk about not knowing what are real memories or implanted ones, uh, the difference between the things that we, you know, remember and know from growing up there versus like all of these, you know, pop cultural memories and things that we admired on TV or in the movies forming and shaping so many of our memories Mm -hmm. or the music. That's the the Karen Carpenter book kind of goes into that. So I think part of what I've been doing throughout my entire academic career and other sort of side hustles or whatever you want to call them is thinking about how pop culture, you know, how we can continue to take pleasure in the pop culture that's so important to us while also understanding some of the reasons that we've been implanted, again, to kind of (laughs) stick with the Total Recall theme, with some of these memories in nefarious ways. Yeah, I think there's something, I mean, I remember in some of my first like film classes in college and reading about the hyper real and how what's remembered is maybe more important or more real than what actually happened. And I think that that's something We've been grappling a little bit with this season. And even in last season, when we looked at Hollywood throughout the decades of the 20th century, like, oh, was culture actually like this or did it become like this because it's how it was represented? And I think that's where, like, one of my notes in this movie, there's like a red pill moment. And Mm -hmm. I was like, wait, what does red pilling mean in the Matrix? And what does red pilling mean on the internet for, like, men's rights activists? Like, trying to kind of follow the journey of like, what is this even, where did this start and what does it mean now? And I have no recollection. Like the actual, like, was the internet like this in 19, not this, this isn't a movie necessarily about the internet, but like, where were we in 1966 by way of 1990, looking back at it in 2022? It's a trip, man. 
Well, the one constant is that we've been having this kind of debate about reality, what is virtual, what are merely shadows on the wall since Plato's The Cave, right? right? And the allegories of the cave and just the idea of, you know, how much of our experience of life is in some way mediated, hence the word media, right? Mm. And so lit, literature. So the re- 1966, even with just radio, um, television as a new thing, cinema coming into its own, Philip K. Dick would have plenty to work with around thinking about mediation yeah. and about what's real and what's not. And so, you know, I think that that's... The idea that somehow you can reach some truth that is not that shadow on the cave is the thing that entices people to that red pill. Yeah. I'm having so much college flashback just in this (laughs) tiny little (laughs) intro of all of this. So I'm really curious as we start this conversation, what y'all's relationship with Paul Verhoeven's films are. They're so specific and unique and and their own flavor. Um, And I'm curious, like, when you enter into this space of watching Total Recall for the first or 500th time, like, what's your relationship with his whole canon? Well, I don't know. There's something about his canon that's super, like, fashy, i.e. fascist, kind of, or, like, has certain... It grapples with these kind of fascist aesthetics. And especially as, you know, the 80s was rolling on and technology was getting folded into that idea. RoboCop, for example, right? Like these machines that, and or Starship Troopers, which is very much a kind of, like at once a real fascinated look at, you know, a militarized force, right? <laughs> In some way, like there's something that's like super like macho, very into like violence and guns and buff dudes. I mean, look, fascism also has its fair share of homoeroticism mm. with its eroticism of the male body and muscles, Casper Van Dien and that whole thing. Uh, so, you know, if you look at uh, Paul Verhoeven's oeuvre, like, and when he was born in 1938, you know, in the Netherlands, there's a lot there that's still mm. grappling with the legacies of fascism, World War II, Nazis, et cetera. And this, like, he, I think, is working through that in a lot of sci-fi that was probably also, like, sourced from, like, Total Recall authors like Philip K. Dick, who were working with some of those themes and ideas themselves. But has anybody investigated that theme in Showgirls? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty sure there's some media scholar out there who has. (laughs) But, you know, but, yeah. And I do think about that because, like, um, Starship Troopers, uh, Total Recall, and RoboCop are so similar in aesthetic, theme, texture. Uh, and then you you move forward and, like, you know, last year you get Benedetta. <laughs> and you're like, how is this the same director? <laughs> like, you can kind of see the threads, but it's – but, like – I feel like when we think of Verhoeven, we definitely think of this sort of trifecta of these movies, even though he's clearly done a a lot more outside of it. But um, there's there's just this sweet spot in these three, the aesthetic of these three. So I had never seen Total Recall before. I watched it for this podcast. Have you both seen it before? I saw it back in the day. I was like a senior in high school when it came out. I'm much older than I appear, I think. But um, but I I saw it, you know, it was like one of those movies I watched with my friends in high school. 
And the one thing that struck me about rewatching it, it's been a while, but I rewatched it for this pod, is how kinky it is. It, oh, or yeah. like that there's like kink and like I've been listening to Karina Longworth's latest season of You Must Remember This, Ooh, erotic eighties, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I was thinking a little bit about how this is a kind of switch point from the erotic eighties in many respects. But just like from the jump, the way Sharon Stone kisses Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's like excessive and demonstrative tongue immediately. <laughs> yeah. Can, okay. Can I? Sorry. I So I started watching this movie and I'm like, holy shit, she's really hot. Yeah. And I was just like, like in this way that I was like, it wasn't just like, oh, pretty hot people. Like I kept being drawn into being like, like a like uncomfortably beautiful. And I was like, and she looks kind of familiar. And I was like, no, she's just whatever. And then I was like, no, she looks really familiar, right? And it took me like 20 minutes of this back and forth for me to just Google it and be like, oh my God, it's Sharon Stone. <laughs> like, like I felt like such an idiot after that. But there's something about the way she looks in this that is just like un, like like on another level. I, uh, I so I have spoken a lot in po- on podcasts about like growing up in the 90s and having these sorts of movies being really kind of formative for me so like this is a movie where I'm like I'm sure I watched this when I was little like when it was on HBO or something and was like confusingly horny because of it you know <laughs> like when I was too young to really understand but also I've always really loved a macho movie I've always really been drawn to like these kinds of um cartoonishly violent movies and I think a lot of that is is because I'm like a fairly like meek and anxious person uh in terms of conflict so I like to see this on screen I want to watch everything from I won't spoil Anita's uh, freak out, but I'm really excited to, for us to talk about it more. Or like Ongbok or Shoot 'em Up, which came out, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, but then I I worked uh, for the film studios when they did the remake of this and Robocop, and they were just so dark and like kind of dreary. And I thought, this isn't what I, you know, this wasn't the like fun Arnold Schwarzenegger type of movie that I loved as a little kid and sort of can look back on. So I was watching this a little bit with fresh eyes. Like I didn't quite remember what the progression of the story was going to be, but every set piece I felt like was again, like, do I remember watching it or do I think I remember watching it because I've seen it memed so many times? (laughs) Like that's kind of the question of Arnold's exploding face or (laughs) the, iconically triple-breasted woman who, I mean, I can't be the only person who had, like, an early sexual awakening to that. (laughs) It's way broader and campier than I remembered. Mm -hmm. Like, there was some part of me, I think, so used to the tones of contemporary, like, sci-fi and fantasy and things like that, that, you know, where, where, you know, kind of, there's there's a seriousness to the look. There's a seriousness to the acting and kind of, you know, like even the the sequel to Blade Runner, right? Like the, the drama of that, like that tonality, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the this is almost cartoonish, like in part because of those visual effects that Anita was referring to, right, earlier, but also because of Arnold Schwarzenegger. The Schwarzenegger of it all is just that, the guy really doesn't 
act as much <laughs> as he flexes. <laughs> and I think that that's what we're supposed to, you know, get into. And I think that all of these different prostheses, I think that's what the kind of dichotomy between the the blonde wife, mm-hmm. who turns out to be, spoiler alert, sinister and evil, and the kind of demure yet, as they say, also slightly slutty. I can't remember what the word was that they used. Was it? Uh, it sleazy. It was sleazy and demure. demure. Yeah, the sleazy and demure brunette, right? The, right. the kind of ideal archetype. Um, Best and of just, both worlds. Exactly. And just seeing, you know, Schwarzenegger kind of work through all of those conflicting desires, right? It's just, I don't know. I just feel like that's one thing that that struck me about it, just tonally. It's so broad. And, you know, and I think about like, you know, when I have memories of myself watching it, I think about it being a much deeper experience than it turned out to be rewatching it. Yeah, and I, I think that that's like a, a time thing, right? Like time, age, maturity, and also the like, the access to material, like the way that stories are told today. Like, I, I think that that thematicness we have in more, I don't know, not to be demeaning, but like in more mature ways or more thoughtful ways or more academic ways, right? Um, and yeah, I, I feel like it's, it, it's the, it's, you're like, it's the Schwarzenegger of it all. It's also the Verhoeven of it all, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just, it's so over the top um, in what it's trying to do and what it's trying to say. And that's part of the charm of it to me of like, I like, I really liked this movie. Like I enjoyed watching it. Although yeah. I was, I was babysitting some really raucous dogs. And so the last half of it is a little blurry to me because I was dealing with that madness. But what struck me where I was instantly like immersed in this world is I think that the, the production design and the props were so brilliant. Mm -hmm. Like I actually wrote a list of all of the like technology, like the futuristic stuff, because in, I think in a lot of sci-fi today, like, I don't know that maybe I'm going to regret saying it that way, but like there's something about this movie where the technology and the, the believability of what's happening in this future time is so baked into every aspect of the film. Like, it's not like there's just some weird, like, wall TV in the background. It's like, no, they're using the wall TV. They're using the video chat. They're mm. using all of these, like, very specific types of futuristic technology that's a part of the story. It's a part of the character development, and it's a part of the world in a way that I'm like, yes, show me this, right? Um, it's not just texture kind of hanging out it's like really thought through and that immediately pulls me in right like the the johnny cab with the mannequin driver right (laughs) um that's just like really also aesthetically is really weird even for the world um like little things like that i really appreciate can we talk about just the the arnold of it all like we're talking about arnold in 1990 and he's I mean, he's endlessly fascinating to me as a, as a human being, but as a Hollywood star, like the way that he's, I feel like every effort is made in these, in this like 30 years worth of Arnold's films to just make him seem as American as possible or sort of like blandly every man when he's Mr. Olympus and he has this, you know, early in his career, thick Austrian accent and like it can be really funny to me, like in 
your comedy Arnold Schwarzenegger movies when there's just like the moment where they're like, uh, guess he does push-ups every morning and that explains that. Like, you know, and there's sort of no like kind of reference. I was like, okay, so he's a construction worker, which he's not, but whatever. But the way that he's supposed to just be like um this shell of a person, and then I think that kind of lends to like he doesn't he's not acting. He's just kind of being this presence. Um, And it's so weird to me because I feel like no one could identify with this man. He's so unusual. He's such a physical specimen. He's um, he's just strange. All his like screams and vocalizations that he does are so strange. But at the same time, it's just like we all buy it. We're all like, yeah, that's that's our hero. That's the guy. He's just married to whoever he's married to. Like, this is this is my way into this movie. And we're here in 1990, um, in between Twins and Kindergarten Cop, but before Terminator 2. Like, this is just the ultimate movie star of the moment. Like, how... I just think there's something so strange about that and how, like, ultimately, I mean, we don't need to get into it, but then eventually that he would become a politician and, like, become this sort of, like the Schwarzenegger of Schwarzeneggers. Like, there's just, like, something about him. Well, the U.S. had a certain fascination with oafish masculinity or, like, a kind of massive masculinity. When we think about the Rambo films in the early 80s, and think about or the Rocky films, think about Stallone as someone who's, you know, not, say, an eloquent Shakespearean Mm -hmm. actor, but one who uses his physicality in his roles and also charms people with his humor because he's big and he sounds different and he's, but he's still an everyday guy. I think Schwarzenegger kind of established his career in an arc, his star text in a way that's not too different from Stallone's Mm -hmm. uh, insofar as he is also that kind of block of dude who... It doesn't really matter what he says, except for a couple of catchphrases. And it's all about what he does or what we can project onto him. And most importantly, the kind of masculinity that we can admire him modeling for us. Yeah. And, you know, like like you're saying, in the 80s, there's just this huge surge of like very, very hyper-masculine representation that's very aesthetic, right? You know, which isn't that different than the marvelization of men's bodies and expectations around that. And I think the piece that's really interesting here is the acting expectation, right? Like, we didn't really expect Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and uh, um, I can picture him. Yeah, I'm just like picturing all these dudes, right? Um, we don't really expect them to act as much as be, right? Like mm-hmm. be macho. And and but now I think we have higher expectations for actors. So you y- so much so that like I think the first time many of us saw Chris Hemsworth like could be funny and like is a good comedic actor, we're sort of surprised. And I wonder if that has something to do with our expectations of what it means to be big and macho and like butch in the non-dikey sense right like in the (laughs) in the like masculine buff sense so yeah like does does our expectations of representations of masculinity has they really have they actually changed very much and like not really right yeah i think about the rock today as like Mm. a similarly sort of 
and I think it's changing, but like for a long time in his career, a little bit of an amorphous character. Um, and the Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood podcast, they've sometimes talked about like when The Rock is perceived as a black man in movies versus when he's not. Um, and a lot of times I think that that dividing line is like what type, what background of woman he's paired up with and like what an audience will uh, react to or not react to. And like there's just something about the fill in the blank of like this particular type of macho person. And then now I think we we do expect a little bit more, you know, and we want to know a little bit more about this this person, if they're going to really have a indelible legacy and like the type of person that we want to see on screen. I mean, I guess we'll we'll see how how that continues to go on if he follows yeah. the Arnold trajectory. And I feel like The Rock is a really good example here because like him and I've never thought of this before this moment. So who knows what's going to come out of my mouth. But I feel like him and Arnold are very similar in that, like, they both play the same fucking character over and over again. There's not a high expectation around, like, depth and nuance in their acting. And like they, they they do, like, kids movies or, like, you know, kind of goofy whatever movies and these big serious blockbusters. And they're just meant to be these big dudes. And, like, granted, there's a, there are obviously differences people are going to point them out it's fine but i feel like there that's there's a similar expectation and and they fulfill similar roles in our pop culture i do think that that kind of big dude is an exception more than the rule because i i think that, that there is of course the marvelization thing that you're talking about where you know we're seeing you know people like kumail like pump himself up and things like that and people reacting to it really terribly right and and in some ways you know there's it's okay for some dudes to be buff and other dudes mm. can't be or shouldn't be or that's gross or weird or what have you right um that's it's it's kind of a fascinating thing to see that often around kind of specific kinds of men of color um right um and, you know, the, the certain expectations we have and the different ways that we project masculinity onto different, you know, ways that men are racialized. But but the other thing is that, you know, you know, in the kind of Apatow, post-Apatow world also, where you have guys like Jason Siegel or Seth Rogen or folks or even somebody like, uh, you know, James Franco from that crowd – you have these different supposedly evolved iterations of masculinity or other kinds of masculinity that are supposed to be admired and thought of as in some ways heroic and lovable because of their everydayness, because of their lack of buffness in some way. So so I don't know. I do think that there's a way that we keep those buff guys as exceptions and then that there's something else going on with how socially we're trying to kind of create a range of those things true but i i also just want to add that like we've always allowed different kinds mm -hmm. of men especially white men to be represented and we have not allowed different types of women to be represented mm -hmm. um and i think that what might be different now is is a very limited growing space for men of color to mm -hmm. be a part of the the range and variety, right? And I, mm -hmm. huge caveats, very limited. Um, but but in in 
yeah, I like I, I agree that 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 big buffness is the exception and it is almost comical. Right. Um, but but that's the thing is we always got the dopey husband and we always got the like the movie star good looks and we always got the like trickster. Right. And then we had, you know, one body type of a, <laughs> a woman. Well, look <laughs> and at- she can be blonde or brunette and that's it. You know, <laughs> well, look at this movie. Right. So this is Sharon Stone. She's been in a few things. And then after this, Verhoeven puts her in basic instinct and she has this big career. What happens to Rachel to Coden? She's as far as I know, like hardly ever heard from again. And she's the heroine of this movie, as far as we know. I mean, we, I guess the, we don't see her until later on in the film, but like Verhoeven doesn't decide to put her in basic instinct. He goes with like the person who's going to be this Hollywood bombshell. And that's just kind of the story of so many actresses. Um, and, and that is in... You know, this is not a film that has great representations of women. Like, it's just, it's very, you know, you, you know, Lori, Sharon Stone's character is like, quote unquote, crazy because she's mad about a dream he had, right? Like, just very stereotypical, like, jealous, you know, wife, girlfriend. Um, The way that they talk about women in this of like, meet a beautiful, exotic woman and like, build your perfect woman. And like the binary set of choices of like, you know, he like chooses sleazy and demure and body type and hair color. And like, yes, in terms of a storytelling component, like it's interesting because he's literally describing someone he knows, which is also disturbing. (laughs) That's how (laughs) you would describe her. But like that you can just do that. Right. And maybe theoretically in this world, you can do that with people of all genders and all genders get in on this, like creating their fantasy, which I also think is kind of a problem. Um, But, you know, then you get into the brothel and that's like, or the, the sex club. I eat the kink club. I don't know what the space (laughs) is. And that's where you get like, it could be interesting, you know, except they're like, this chick has three boobs. She's got three boobs. Did you know she's got three boobs? You know, like just <laughs> over and over and over again. Like they're, it, it, this was in the hands of a director who is not thinking about gender equity in the way that this movie is being presented. So it worries me when, you know, he gets the flyer with the strip club on it and like that's his point. And then they're like going to the like seedy, you know, like lower class uh, environment and like, Yes, it's it's kind of a commentary on the world, but like not. I don't know, like it just felt like it fed into certain stereotypes that I found a little frustrating, Um, even though I feel like it could have been done in a way where you're more supportive or it's less gazy, you know. Even with the taxi driver on Mars, you know, who's a blend of stereotypes, (laughs) like pick one per scene. But yeah. Yeah. And you've got and yeah, like you have this sort of black sidekick, which like holy stereotypes, man, and then turns out to be a villain. So that's cool. (laughs) And you're just like, cool. You just you made it worse. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that there's it's it's what the the world that this the Total Recall leaves us with is one that establishes a core couple 
the reclamation of their relationship from something that was built around deceit into something that is, I guess, more honest now, insofar as, you know, uh, Quaid, when he was, I can't even remember the name of his original, like, evil conspiratorial self when he was working with the bad guy on Mars. Hauser? Hauser? Yeah, exactly. The the more Germanic name. Um, So Hauser was, you know, uh, deceived uh, had it ended up deceiving that Rachel Zakotin's character into thinking that he was a revolutionary, but he actually wasn't, right? So in the end, that that set that web of lies has been resolved, and purportedly they can live together now in freedom with a beautiful new atmosphere that they released into the world that liberates the greatest can, number of people on the planet. Can we talk about those effects? For a second, um, which so it like, starts the the movie starts there. By the way, so if you go into the movie theater and you're like, "This isn't for me," you can get out right away. The like the bug eye, like there. So so you you know what's ha- like at this point, it's the end of the movie. You yeah. know what's happening. They go out into the atmosphere. The one guy's face fucking melts off, and his eyes bug out of his head. And then they go out into the atmosphere, and their eyes are starting to bug out. And you're like, "Does that just go back in?" Like, do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, that's all, that's what I was saying. I was just like, yeah, I mean, how does how do they just like re- return to looking hot? You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> it's just like after that. Also, especially because we are introduced to people who, uh, in in the kind of red light district, yeah, who supposedly suffered oxygen deprivation in the past, and their bodies and faces remain scarred and altered by it, you know? And yeah. so so it's just so, but of course we get to leave our protagonists with, you know, everything intact. And in fact, a better world intact for them as opposed to, you know, the kind of, I guess, instrumentalized relationship between Laurie, the Sharon Stone character and uh, Quaid. And of course her true lover, the really bad guy, the henchman, uh, who who has like some jealousy about yeah. her role, which, which I think listening to you talk remi- kind of got me more closer to the point of like you're you, you know the red light district. You have um, people who have uh, physical disabilities or more like a little bit disfigured, I guess, non traditional appearances, and there's a sense that like this guy's fighting for them and going to like liberate them. And then you have the flip, right? Where it's like, nope, it was all just a trick. So he gets free and now he's like one of them. Like, you know, like, like what, what? Well, like, what is the it- point that you're making about class here? Right. Because the movie starts very deeply entrenched in class. Yeah. Because, you know, he's too poor to travel. Um, he does manual labor. He, you know, there's this whole thing about buying, a memory. So you think you went on a trip, but didn't. So like class is clearly a component throughout this whole film. Although he does live in a pretty nice apartment. Yes. Which I would just like to say one of the pieces of technology in this movie that I would like is the TV wall where you have panels and then you can like close them with art or whatever or wallpaper and then you can open them again and you can watch things on like one or three. Like that's my dream is just have like wall screens. Um, I will vote for the, I'm, I like a manicure, so I liked the uh, oh, the yeah. lady at the recall office who could just, like, change her nails. Um, but Karen, one of the things, uh, I guess I just wanted to say, like, since we're on technology, one yeah. of the things that struck me is at how little we understood how easy it would be to be tracked or surveyed, 
mm. in the future because the tracking of it, you know, in a it would be a much more difficult thing to get rid of whatever tracking device now, uh, and you know the kind of the bulkiness of the tracking and and how dramatic it is having to be wrenched from his brain, right? When honestly, just like any device now will track you. Yeah. It's just sort of like it, it felt very innocent to see a world of surveillance that wasn't even as bad as the one we live in now. Yeah, right. Like, I love that <laughs> he's got a bug in his brain. So he wraps a wet towel around his head and that's going <laughs> to stop it from transmitting. And I'm just like, to your point, Karen, like, is that what they thought? Like, or was that a plausible? Because today, you know, like, it's hilarious for us to laugh about that now. But like, was that also funny back then? Uh, also, the shoving the thing up your nose and pulling the bug out, like, that was wonderful and terrible all at the same time. <laughs> I Now, I don't want to get away from, we were talking about the ending and, like, would you go back to being hot after your tongue had, like, exploded? <laughs> <It's very important. laughs> and I do think that that is, like perhaps are proof that the ending is not real. Like that's maybe the question we're supposed to leave on is like, did they die there? Or like, is this some sort of dream? Did any of this really happen? Like it ends in such a way that I think is like so unbelievable, even for this like bombastically crazy movie that, the line at the end where he's like, oh, I just had this weird feeling. What if this was all a dream? The only problem is that, like, it's not handled artfully at all. So <laughs> there's no, like, you don't leave with any sense of, like, profundity. <laughs> You're just like, yeah, man, or not. I don't know. Like, <laughs> whatever. Well, if you think, if you I think about clearly what, that. If you think about what is actually achieved by the end of the film, it, you know, I suppose the liberation of many Martians and people living on Mars is one of them. But the focus has always been on whether or not Quaid feels like he's made a contribution, mm. whether or not he's remarkable, whether or not he was destined for something else bigger, right? And and what you see is him fulfilling that fantasy, being destined for something else much grander. In yeah. fact, saving, creating, making a more habitable world. But so I do think that the that that the ease of that achievement, even though I guess it wasn't easy, but like achieving that as the goal points to how that's what he went to go to recall for to begin with, is to just like make himself feel better about, you know, being a schlubby dude who didn't contribute anything. Which kind of goes back to what Kat was saying in terms of the casting. Like he's not an everyman that you would like attach yourself onto to be like, I want to have an impact in the mm. world and do something good for the world and, you know, whatever, what have you. <laughs> like, there's no one who's in that audience that's like, yeah, I'm just like that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me about how in college they were obsessed with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and like getting really ripped and, you know, read everything that they could. And then at the end of his, like, at the end of Schwarzenegger's bio, it's like, yeah, we just did a bunch of steroids. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, this isn't possible. <laughs> and you're like, God damn it. But there is. But I, I did want to say, like, as someone who was growing up in the 80s, right? And, you know, who was like finishing high school, like around the time that in 1991. So this, you know, movie came out like right in that zone. I do think that there was this fantasy that by s simple or and increasingly so for men, simple cosmetic transformations to yourself, you could 
be more meaningful. You mm. could be more important, like getting buff, becoming a buff dude, and bu th that kind of body culture. Sure, there was bodybuilding culture in the 50s, 60s, etc. But the way that, you know, like even just Schwarzenegger's career played out um, and his own star text to somebody who's like from pumping iron, you know what I mean? It's like the idea that, and, and, and it was a moment where, uh, Everybody, all the baseball players were taking steroids yeah. too, right? So to become heroes. So. Well, that's that's what happens mm. today. Mm. Like when Chris Hemsworth is in, or whoever is in Men's Health, saying like I eat ten chickens every day, and it's like <laughs> we all know that's not true. Like it's just why are you pretending? Like there's no, it'd be it's fine, it's fine. Like you know, just just tell us how it happens. Like, but there's this. This notion that you can just do that and uh, and you'll look like Thor. I will say in a very small uh, sample size here that once uh, my wife and I rented out our place because we were out of town, rented out our place to three Australian actors who were here for pilot season. And when we returned, I mean, there were endless chicken breasts, skinless, <laughs> well as chicken breasts in the freezer, lots of you know, nut oils, so much coconut oil, all of these things. I was like, there are dudes here. And, and every time we'd call just to ask about anything related to the house, they'd be working out. Yeah. So, you know. Like, so. this shit's real. It's like <laughs> lean, high protein is all you eat. Like, you choke down a dry chicken breast three times a day and eat egg whites and, like, guzzle that shit down, right? For, and like, bodybuilding stuff. crushed tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> oh, man. But also, like, and I, I've watched Pumping Iron and a couple of those, like, uh, behind the scenes. Like, also right before a competition, they pound a bunch of sugar so that their veins pump out and they look even, like, more muscular. And you know that, like, on set, right before any of these scenes are shot, they're, like, doing curls. Like, they want to look as buff as possible in that moment. Um Okay, can we go back to the recall office? So I know we're jumping around because this is just, we don't need to really talk about well, the plot. Well, it's impressionistic. But. I think that that's the thing is like you kind of know once the plot is set in motion, yeah. you know, everything is determined by these bursts of action, right? Yeah. So it's okay to jump around, I think. Totally. And like, he's supposed to be a little bit confused about what's happening as well. Um but I loved this moment, and I feel like this happened throughout the 90s, where there would just be these sort of nods to, like, culture um, and cultural norms that and trends that were changing. So when he's asked what his sexual orientation is, and he's like, hetero, and she gives this little, like, <laughs> mm, like <laughs> this little, like, oh. Oh, is that, is that so? Like, there was just this moment, and I feel like that happened in every type of movie. Like, it happened in Mr. Holland's Opus, where it was, like, two boys holding hands. Times sure have changed. Like, there were, there's just these acknowledgments of, like, we're in the 90s. We get it. Like, I don't know. I just kind of wanted to, like, <laughs> acknowledge that. And then five seconds later, he's choosing from, like, big-titted skinny woman to, like, big-titted slightly less skinny woman to like various like ethnic derogatory phrases that he could like choose you know for what type of woman so it was like what this notion of like are we supposed to feel like this is a progressive world maybe 
Yeah, yeah. well, that's the con- contradiction, I think, that, I mean, again, I've this is like the second time I think I've referred to erotic 80s, but that, you know, um, that the people were sorting through is like, okay, how do you accommodate for sexual liberation in some way mm. and sexual expansion, but still keep the societal structure and the patriarchal structure intact, right? And so I think that this is, you know, this film and, you know, and kind of Verhoeven as he continues on to the 90s does this, is present, you know, supposed sexual freedom, the freedom to, you know, maybe consider something other than hetero. (laughs) But what you get eventually is the foreclosure of all of that back into, you know, basically the straight dude's wishes and desires and his fantasies. That is what reigns foremost in the end is like, does his fantasy become fulfilled? Mm -hmm. Do his fantasies, all of them. Yeah. Well, what a movie, everybody. <laughs> so I much have, Pepsi, by the way, in the future. Yeah. Like, are they obviously <laughs> paid for I, that? Um, maybe in the bonus, we can talk a little bit about, um, like, what, like, how how to account for the future in contemporary times uh, in science fiction, because that's something I think about a lot and is related to this piece around like including hetero, which is acknowledging that there is any other kind of sexuality, you know? Um, and and just to acknowledge it, because I'm sure listeners will be like, how did you do a whole episode about Total Recall, like, and not mention Quato? Quato? Like, Quanto? <laughs> just like, I don't know, just wanted to mention it. Like, I really don't have anything to say about it, except that I did think that that puppet was awesome. And... <laughs> So were all of the animatronic weird heads and faces, but this, I mean, the practical effects in this movie are fucking amazing. Like it is. And just the, the, the creativity, like where his, where his head splits apart in like pieces and just, and like the woman's head when he's pretending to be this woman, like there's so much the x-ray machine. Like we, we got kind of deep into stuff. I don't know, 80s body stuff, but like, the visuals of this, the security screen, the like the world building is magnificent. Like it's worth it just for uh, I, for me, it's worth it just for that experience. Speaking of experiences, we will be right back to share some freakouts. If you are enjoying our show, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Your monthly or annual tax-deductible gift helps us keep the show running and on the air. By becoming a patron, you're supporting independent feminist media and a nonprofit that's working to end abuse in the games industry. Plus, patrons get a special bonus alongside each episode of the podcast. Of course, we know that not everyone has the means to financially support the show, so... Just taking a moment to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show can help new listeners find us. We appreciate your support in whatever way you can provide it. Now, back to the show. Now, it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Karen, what are you freaking out about? What am I not freaking out about? Truth be told, and I Fair. think that this is probably a question that you grapple with each episode. It's yeah. sort of like, you you know, sure, we're in the last days of the Weimar Republic. We're in the last, you know, 20 minutes of cabaret. This is, <laughs> you know, and it's coming faster than we thought. Yeah. So, you know, and with each new day, there is a new 
ver- new point of verification that we are fully entering into fascism to continue the conversation about Total Recall and Paul Verhoeven. But because we are in the last days of the Weimar Republic, I thought it only appropriate to bring up the fact that I went to a piano bar uh, recently, very masked up because I'm very concerned about this, the BA5 variant. And, yeah. you know, I'd had COVID in February and it's just sort of like I had my room spring after that. But uh, a show that provided us comfort in those weird saddle years where things maybe gave us hope that the U.S. could change in some way. Crazy ex-girlfriend. Uh, Rachel Bloom hosted a sing-along oh. at The Stowaway, which is a beautiful new piano bar in downtown Los Angeles. And it was really just such a kind of down-home fun kind of fanish experience where she was leading songs, fans were leading songs, members of the cast were there. And I mention it not just to make people envious because it happened once live and I was there, but this is apparently going to happen with some frequency. So if you live in the Los Angeles area and you need to sing it out, um, you know, um, like I said, the final 15 minutes of Cabaret, come join us at the Stowaway. Okay. I'm so excited to learn that there's a piano bar in downtown LA that's like cool. Like that that's what I'm taking away from this. Also, Rachel Bloom um was doing a um just a run of her new comedy series at the Dynasty Typewriter and I missed it, but I wanted to check that out cuz you know, she's yeah. a funny and lady. This- and this place, it's a beautiful bar. It's sort of underground. Um, and it's easy. It's large enough to, to where if you're not super comfortable and not feeling, you know, COVID safe, you can kind of step away and still enjoy the fun and mm. be in a kind of more spacious area. Uh, so, you know, uh, I can imagine how difficult it is for live venues to recover or to thrive, especially those that start up during the pandemic. Um, as the pandemic rages yeah, on. Yeah, except so, it know. feels like nobody in LA gives a shit about COVID anymore. <laughs> and that's, you know, whatever. It's terrifying a little bit. Well, that, yeah, that's that that's definitely part of the freak out. So, you know, it's all these things, the combo, you know, pandemic, yeah. end of the Republic, et cetera, et cetera. And piano bars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we're all going to fucking die, I would love to die, like, chilling in piano bars, <laughs> listen to cool music. This, exactly. is, good, this is good to know, because I was recently, I mean, I keep, I've thought for the last two years, like, am I never going to do karaoke ever again? Like, Mm. that's probably been the hardest thing for me to grapple with (laughs) among the, like, you know, million deaths and everything else. I'm like, am I really never going to do karaoke ever again? (laughs) Maybe one day. Anita. Maybe one day. Yes. Bring me out of this funk. What are you freaking out about? Oh, boy. My favorite movie of 2022. Are you ready? Okay, so... Y'all might have heard of a movie called RRR. It got it's gotten loads of buzz. It's a um, Tollywood movie, which means it's from the Telugu cinema film language film industry. Um, so everyone's talking about this movie, right? It was in theaters for a run in L- in um, in the U.S. and then Netflix picked it up, and it's three hours long. And when am I ever going to watch this fucking thing? But everyone's talking about it. You know, blah, blah. Yesterday, my friend dragged me out to a screening of this movie because it's not really screening in many places anymore. This was like the last dregs of it. Um, Okay, before I tell you about it, first of all, uh, the screening was in the original language. So what you're going to get on Netflix if you watch it is dubbed in Hindi, which is not the original language, uh, which Mm -hmm. I think sucks. And it has something to do with the distribution rights of all of the different dubbings. And so Netflix got that distribution right. Okay, 
Here's the thing. This movie is a movie which takes place during the British colonization of India. It's set in the 1920s. It's this fictional story about these two men with these like different experiences and agendas, and then they become besties. Um, and then they don't, and then they do, and you know, whatever, movies. Um, it is, I am so grateful that I watched it in a theater. I'm so grateful that I watched it in a theater where multiple people in that theater knew what to expect because it was like raucous, like cheering and explosion and like audience interaction. This movie uh, is I, I walked out of the theater feeling like I was high and I wasn't drinking or anything like I legitimately was like hyped and high and I blared the soundtrack on my way home. Like I cannot quite explain what you're getting into it is it is not without problems representationally it is extremely violent um but it is so joyous to both watch brown folks like getting one up on these like shitty white colonizers um and it's also the direction of it the way that the storytelling is the effects of like the really over-the-top extreme violence um one of the main characters is so hot that I like. I, I literally, I don't do this that often, but the whole time I was like, "Holy fuck! Holy fuck! Holy fuck!" <laughs> and then at some point he has long hair, and then I'm just dead. Like that's just it. It's like over it for me. And I was like, I can't take this. So it is visually stimulating. The acting, the characters, the like, the 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 choreography. Um, it, I just, I feel like I'm not doing it. I feel like I just said a lot of words that are not selling this movie because I like still can't stop thinking about like how much it made me feel so much joy in such a joyless moment. Also, one of the main actors looks just like John Belushi. Oh, weird. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That was the only thing that took me out of it. I am so sad that I didn't see this in theaters. I really wanted to i just missed my window but hopefully it'll be back maybe i there's so much hype yeah uh i feel like it might be something that like theaters get to run for these like not sing along but like you know yeah. like hype along i i, I would a hundred percent see it again there were multiple people in my theater who were like yeah i've seen it five times already like it's just it is I, yeah, I keep being like, I'm going to find the words that's going to immediately explain how it is. But like you you'll you'll watch it and then you'll be like, oh, I get it because uh, it's just it's such a ride. And like, you know, it's I know we all sit down and watch like eight episodes of a TV show and then you're like, well, that was fucking eight hours. Whoops. But like sitting down and watching a three hour movie feels like a different type of commitment. Um, and it it like it flies by like, it's just, you're so enthralled and immersed in this world. And, um, Karen, have you seen RRR? I haven't seen it yet. I mean, it's like to sustain my narrative attention. It's a lot lately. Like it takes a lot to like, and even to sit and binge or anything like that. But a a true three hour narrative, I think I tried to see something recently. I can't even remember what it was that I tried to sit through. That was several hours. And was it drive my car? That was the last three hour movie. Oh yes, it was. Yes. And I actually really appreciate, I just sort of like, you know, surrendered to Mm -hmm. the, the, the mood. Right. Yeah. And uh, I feel like that movie, I feel like Drive My Car earned that three hours. Like, yeah. Well, and I would say, and I did, like, I watched a lot of Bollywood movies in high school. So, like, I had 
experience, I know this is not, this is Tollywood, but I'd experience with like these epic films. I think both Drive My Car and RRR have chapters. So there is like that, that ability, you know, there's the whole kind of prologue of Drive My Car, which is its own short film before yeah like, it's 40 minutes happens. before the fucking title card comes up <laughs> yeah. in that movie and i think yeah. rrr yeah. is similar where you kind of like here's this fable all right now let's go to this other character here's this fable okay now we're gonna bring them together and you're gonna have that sequence for half an hour um but even though i've only seen it on netflix i do go back and watch the desi notch dance scene just like whenever I honestly I was just thinking that like after I'm done work today I might just go watch that scene again like just the dance off the two (laughs) the two for those who have watched it the two scenes that I like keep coming back to are the dance off and the fucking animals like just that moment where the animals happen uh none of these are spoilers because you have no idea what i'm talking about animals happening yeah animals happening yeah Yeah. but if you know you know exactly what i'm talking about so um anyways that's my freak out sincerely like i've had a hard time finding joy in anything lately and like even things that i normally like and this was such a it was such a reprieve from all of that for me so anyways watch it on netflix if you can't watch it anywhere else because it's still worth it i just um I'm rubbing it in everyone's faces that I got to not do that. <laughs> uh, Kat, um, what are you freaking out about? I'm freaking out about something so sweet and simple by comparison. So um, have either of you watched the Netflix series City of Ghosts? Yes. No. Yes. I, have. I love that show. It's very dear. It's very dear. So I just, um, last night I went to the the IRL premiere of Elizabeth Ito's new short. Um, It did officially its world premiere happened in Fortnite, but they had an IRL premiere of the short film Mall Stories at the Burbank Town Center. Um, And I had really loved City of Ghosts. It's a children's uh, cartoon series that blends documentary and animation. Uh, It's about a a ghost club that some children have in Los Angeles where they meet at the LA Public Library and they go to different neighborhoods around LA and interview ghosts or interview people who are being haunted by a ghost. And That's each, adorable. It is so adorable and each episode focuses on a specific neighborhood and uses these ghost stories to teach you about the history of the neighborhood. So there's a Boyle Heights episode that talks about the history of Japanese Americans in Boyle Heights. There's a Venice episode that talks about skateboarders. There's um, a beautiful episode about Tongvanar and the indigenous history of this region. As a native Angelino, I really, really loved this show. I love the kind of representation that you see of children who comfortably use each other's pronouns and who are having this lovely experience just talking about ghosts and talking into a hairbrush while they're taping themselves uh, filming ghost stories. So um, her new short film, Mall Stories, uh, profiles the Mongolian Grill, which is a restaurant in the Burbank Mall's food court. And um, the Mongolian Grill is like a a staple of L.A. mall food courts and like California mall food courts. I learned last night that that is not common necessarily on the East Coast or in other regions. I thought that was just like hot dog on a stick. It's at every mall food court. You go and there's Mongolian Grill. And what's really cool about it is how basically she 
Uh, Elizabeth Ito had worked at Cartoon Network. She always, which is across the street from the Burbank Mall. She'd always go to Mongolian Grill and get lunch. She ended up having the opportunity to make this short. And she just went up to the girl who works, who owns the place and was like, hey, can I interview you for a cartoon documentary? Like, <laughs> and the girl was like, what? No, I'm busy. Like, there's a, there's a rush happening. Leave me alone. So they ended up doing it. And it's just this lovely short. It's on YouTube. It's like seven minutes long. And it is the real story of um, a Korean-American woman who owns a small business in a dying mall. I say dying mall, even though I go to the Burbank Mall like five times a week. But uh, as we know, mall culture is not what it once was. And just talks about like being a business owner after and during the pandemic and the manager who is really organized and the guy who works there who singed his arm hairs when he was trying to learn how to do Mongolian grill. And it's just this like lovely little slice of life. So I'm really intrigued when animation is able to be used as a medium and not strictly as children's entertainment, um, but to show kind of real people and um, real cultures and like how it just feels so LA to me also to have like the story of a Korean American Burbank girl who bought her dad's Mongolian grill restaurant that she worked at since she was a teenager in the Burbank mall. And now it's in this like, Unreal Engine animated documentary short. Like, it's just cool and weird and awesome and lovely. And you should watch it. And I will add about City of Ghosts, too, is that many of the episodes are also food-centric mm-hmm. and have to do with how food culture is so interwoven into these different places in Los Angeles, whether or not it's a sad musician ghost inhabiting a Korean barbecue restaurant or the very first episode, which is about a young Filipino chef, like, you know, trying to make a go of it in in Boyle Heights and having to negotiate with the ghost of someone, a Japanese occupant of the place who, you know, does not like the way she's making her katsu and tempura. (laughs) So, yeah, go for it. Wonderful. That is our show for today. Thank you, Karen, for joining us. It was a pleasure to be here. I mean, what? I always love talking to you. I love to hear you on uh, Waiting to Exhale and various other podcasts. Tell our audience where they can learn more about you. You can find me on Twitter at Inland Emperor, but also look up the Waiting to Exhale. That's X-H-A-L-E podcast a show about the forgotten generation and everything you've forgotten about Generation X, which I co-host and co-produce with Winter Mitchell Rohrbaugh. So uh, if you want to hear more uh, explorations of pop culture and indeed malls, because (laughs) what is Gen X culture but malls, uh, feel free to check us out. You can also find me making food videos because I'm very into food. I'm a food-motivated person, as I like to say, uh, on Instagram at Tonksinator. Uh, immediately following that, yeah. <laughs> we uh, back back pre-cat. Uh, our bonus episodes were largely filled with Ebony and I talking about our food <laughs> adventures. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure having you. Uh, I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and you can find me at Anita Sarkeesian on all of the things. 
I'm Kat Spada, and you can find me on Twitter at Kat underscore EX underscore Machina. And please be sure to follow Feminist Frequency at F-E-M-F-R-E-Q, Femfreak. If you are a Patreon subscriber, be sure to stick around for the bonus episode with our guest, Karen Tonkson. If you like our show, please help other people find it by subscribing, rating, and commenting on your favorite pod catcher. Thanks, Thanks so much, so for, much listening. for listening. <laughs> <Nah>. Bye. <laughs>